What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Church, let's grab our Bibles. We are in Revelation 7 this morning, a difficult text, as I mentioned in my pastoral prayer, but we'll do what we can with it. Let's go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's Word as it is inspired, it is inerrant, it is the infallible Word of the only true and living God. Let's receive this for what it is, the very Word of the Lord. Revelation chapter 7 is the text. We're going to read from 1 to 8 here this morning. After this, he says, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Verse 5, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. It'd be great if you could play life on invincibility mode like you have in the video games. I'm not a gamer myself. I don't have a lot of time for that. Some of you do, that's fine. But uh, I remember when I was a kid playing Super Mario Brothers, and you'll have to help me with this. There was a certain flower or a token or something like that. What was that? That you could, uh, your guy could eat it, that token, and then for a couple of minutes he would be invincible, right? You remember this? And it was great because no enemy could harm you. There was no danger. There was no fire that could get you. There was no pit that you could fall into. Whatever happened to you while you were on invincibility mode, could not hurt, it could not harm you, and it would be great if life were like that, but it's just not. We wish that our bodies were impervious to disease, but it's not true. We do get cancer and other viruses, and we get sick, and we get ill, and we, get, and we die. We wish that we could be prevented from all accidents, that our cars would never break down, that no other cars would ever be able to collide into ours. We wish our finances were on an invincibility mode 
so that our bank accounts would never diminish but only increase. We wish even our skin was impervious to cuts or to bruises or to infections. We wish our hearts were impervious when people hurt us with their words and we wish our emotions were so strong that nothing ever ever harmed us. But it's just not true. We don't play life in invincibility mode. It's not possible. We're mortal. We're frail. We're weak. We die, right? And, and yet, in our text today, what we see is that there is a seal of God's protective favor that He gives to us such that we can really and truly say that we have that divine protection in Christ that we need. And so we're going to look at that today in this particular text. Now, as we do this, I want to just remind you of the context of this passage because it is kind of important here this morning. So what we've been doing the last few weeks is we've been looking at the Lord Christ, the ascended, resurrected Jesus. He is opening the seven seals. We've been looking at this through all of chapter 6, right? The seven seals are being opened. The first four were somewhat of judgments of these four horsemen that the imagery being drawn from Zechariah chapter 6, and they brought a lot of woe to the earth. And then the fifth seal, David preached that one. It was about the martyrs in heaven and how they cry out to the Lord and how even there the Lord hears their prayers and comforts them. And then the sixth seal last week, this is important, we said that the sixth seal was actually the final judgment. It's one of John's many places where he gives us the return of Christ, the final judgment, the end of the world. And so the sixth seal is kind of the end. But we're not yet to the seventh seal. And in fact, uh, we're not reading about that at all today. We come to the strange parenthesis, let's call it, in the opening of the seals, wherein we have an interlude. Okay? There's some sort of a delay. There's some sort of a parenthetical event that takes place here between the end of the sixth seal and the seventh seal, which we're going to come to, I think, in a couple weeks, if I'm not mistaken. So this is an interlude. Now, what's happening here? Well, this is kind of strange, and I need you to, to think with me here very carefully as we look really closely at this text. So look at verse 1 in your Bible. It says, after this I saw. Now we're tempted to just think then that this is going to follow chronologically and sequentially from what we just read because it seems like it's just moving on in this linear progression. But actually remember, when John says, after this I saw, he's only telling you the order that he, as the seer, experienced these visions. In fact, this may surprise you, I actually think what we have here is somewhat of a flashback scene, if you will. Because what we're seeing here is the sealing of the servants, which we're going to come to that uh, in some detail here in verse 3. But notice this, um, as he says in verse 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until the sealed, the servants of God, uh, until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And so in some kind of a strange sense here, this almost looks like the sealing and protection that's going to be given to the servants even before the first four seals were opened up. In fact, I'm, I'm more and more convinced of that because it even mentions here the holding back of the winds. Do you see that in verse 1? Which also comes from that same Zechariah chapter 6 passage where the horseman motif is drawn as the Old Testament source text. And so the sealing or this divine protective measure put upon the servants for their own good seems to me and many other Reformed and conservative commentators to actually be taking place before 
the seals are opened. And so that may come as a bit of a surprise to you, but the more I study this text, the more I'm convinced that this is true. This is actually somewhat of a flashback scene that's showing the favor that God is going to give his servants so that they may endure some of these things that are to come. But again, no invincibility mode here is promised. Okay, Because after all, the fifth seal, which we talked about earlier, shows that some are going to be martyred. And yet, nevertheless, they're going to receive the seal of protective favor which God is going to grant them. So we have a difficult text here, I'm not going to lie. Uh, There's going to be a couple times where I'm going to tell you, quite honestly, I don't know what the passage means. I'll tell you what most of the Reformed and conservative Bible commentators say, although I myself am not entirely sure about some of the details here in this text, and so that's okay if, if you're not entirely convinced either. But we're going to do what we can. So I have two tasks I want to try to endeavor to tackle this morning. First, we're going to look at this idea of the sealing. We want to know, what is the seal that is placed on the foreheads of God's servants to the best that we're able to understand it? But then secondly, in the same passage, we've got another Bible difficulty here. It's supposed to be for our comfort, but it is a difficulty. In the census that's described in verses 5 to 8, we need to try to figure out why in the world John gives us this census of recorded sets of 12, numbering 144,000. And trust me when I tell you that the interpretations of this are all all over the map. So we're going to do our best here this morning. So I would prefer it, would you humor me please, and have your Bible out with you. This is going to be the best way for us to work through this so we can see the details in the text and understand them to the best that we're able to do so. So let's start. We already looked at verse 1 a little bit with the after this line. Let's jump then to verse 2 where it says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea. Again, I think that's the four horsemen that we've already seen in the first four seals. Okay? Now, this is confusing, so let's just slow down here and look at the word seal for a moment, because one of the difficulties is that the word seal is used with quite a bit of rapidity here, and we actually get lost a little bit with what, what's being opened and what are these seals. So remember, um, Christ is opening the seven seals, yes? And he's opening the seven seals on a scroll or a book. And that gives us a little bit of a visual imagery here. Either it's the rolled up scroll that we talked about, and these seals are like these wax end caps which hold the seal closed until the one who is permitted opens it up. Or... It's something like a codex, like a book that flips open like our Bibles and the seals here would be something like latches that keep the codex shut until Christ then goes through and opens up all of the seals, revealing then the decreed will of God. So we have the word seal here in that context, but here's what's a little bit tricky is that it's the same word seal that we're talking about in our text today, same Greek, same English word. But I think the picture is a little bit different here with this kind of a word, seal. So hang with me. Because sometimes this Greek word um, is not referring to the closure of a scroll or a codex, but rather some sort of an official insignia or emblem that denotates to whom that particular object belongs okay so you may think of like a a family crest for instance which has uh just going to make up an example a lion or an eagle or some sort of symbol and that's the family symbol and then those sorts of insignia would be used 
to identify what property belongs to the person who has that crest. Does that make sense? Everybody with me so far? Okay. So that too would take place more like a stamp. Or we might even think of a brand. If you've ever had cattle before, you may brand your particular cattle with your own insignia so that if anybody finds them out straying and wandering around, you know to whom that particular animal belongs. And not only that, but if you were to steal it or be found in illegal possession of it, then you would then invoke the ire of the one who, prov- who possesses that seal. Does that make sense? So in the ancient world too, especially kings, they would have a special emblem or stamp or insignia very often contained on like a signet ring and that seal could be used as a searing hot brand to demarcate what belongs to the king or it could be used to press into melted wax or things like that or even ink on a document to stamp and then again to certify what's taking place here and so even the word, though the world the word excuse me seal is being used differently here i think we get the idea that it's the latter kind of seal that we're talking about here. There's some sort of a divine insignia, crest, seal, stamp, signet ring, emblem, whatever you want to call it, that is marking certain people as being the possession of the living God. Make sense so far? All right, so who is getting sealed here? Who is getting stamped? Well, the angel seems to have the seal, And he is placing this seal on who? What does the text say? Well, the text says, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. Now, that's a key word, servants. That's the word doulos in the Greek. Douloi in the plural. And that's a very common biblical word. It's one that Paul is very fond of. This is the common word that means slaves or even servants or sometimes translated bond servants and we have a very negative connotation of slavery here rightly so in our american context we think of slavery as being a very bad and negative thing but i want you to set that aside for a moment and just recall that the apostles themselves are not ashamed at all to be called the servants of the living god in fact they take that title to themselves quite often if you read paul's letters romans 1 1 what's the first thing he says about himself before he says in his apostle he says he is a doulos of Christ. He's not ashamed of that. And so to James, who's actually the brother of the Lord, who didn't believe during Jesus' earthly ministry, James gets saved, and James in his letter, he calls himself a doulos of Christ, his own brother. And so then it is the servants of the living God, the, the doulos, the douloi, those who are pleased to say, he is my master and my king. I'm not ashamed to take him as my God, nor is he ashamed of me to mark me as his servant. These are the ones who are being sealed then with this emblem, insignia, this mark, this protective favor then of the living God. And so once again I say, well, what is the seal? Is it some sort of invincibility mode so that you can be marked with a shield of God and you're never going to suffer in your life? Obviously not. So put that idea aside. Obviously not because the apostles suffered and John suffers and the martyrs are going to be killed fifth seal right and whether we uh, interpret this letter as being this book as written in 70 AD which we've discussed or 96 AD those are the two dates for the book of Revelation either way in either time 70 or 96 the people of God are suffering and their suffering is increasing as they're experiencing persecution So what is the seal? 
It's not invincibility mode so that you're never going to suffer. Well, here then come the options, the faithful options. So let me give you two just for our, our consideration this morning. Some would say that the kind of seal that we're talking about here is actually, you ready for this? The seal of baptism. Is that a possibility here? I think it is. I think this is a viable possibility that the seal that is being talked about for true believers, the true douloi, the servants of God, is the mark of Christian baptism. In favor of that, what is baptism other than a naming ceremony, right? And just as in the Old Testament they had circumcision, which was a sign and a seal that these were the covenant people of God, so also in the New Testament we have now the sign and the seal of baptism such that when we walk around out in the external world, and when we're even in the church, don't ever forget, you have the name of the living God stamped and impressed upon you. His emblem is His name, and His name is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have been marked and denotated as the people of God. Okay? Does that protect you from all evil and harm? No, it does not. You can still suffer even as one who is baptized. But it certainly distinguishes you from the unbelieving world. And moreover, it calls you to live a more faithful life. right? Because as you improve your baptism, or as the Puritans used to describe it, as you apply your baptism and recall that you are a baptized person, then you are to live at a higher level of faithfulness as the douloi of Christ who are willing then to endure whatever hardship, whatever difficulty you will take on any task for the sake of His glory. You will not be afraid because His name goes with you. And so as the baptized people of Christ, uh, we mark our people with the name, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in in defense of this, circumcision is called a sign and a seal in Romans chapter 4. Okay, So I find this interpretation to be... uh, Quite valid that the seal is baptism. By the way, as Presbyterians, we baptize by pouring, right? Where do we pour? We pour on the head. And so there might even be a little bit of imagery here that the baptism of pouring is that which is sealed on the foreheads of the servants, okay? So I think baptism is a legitimate possibility for the seal, this naming covenantal seal of Christ's people. Now, before we, um, before we marry that interpretation, let me, go, let me throw out another one. And I, and I think this is also a faithful interpretation, and I don't know, okay? I'm just being honest with you. There's a strong possibility here that the seal is actually the Holy Spirit Himself. Is that possible? I think so. Okay, because it is the people of Christ, it is the people of God, it is the people who have been regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the people who have been savingly wrought upon in a converting way by the power of the Spirit who have themselves the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Now these two interpretations are not mutually exclusive because remember, baptism is a sign that points to something greater than itself, right? As the covenant signs and seals do. And what does baptism point to other than that infilling and washing of the Holy Spirit Himself. Okay, so these two interpretations are not uh, contradictory to one another. It could be both. But I'll give you this, and in defense of the Holy Spirit Himself as being the seal which you possess, 
The Bible does call the Spirit of God a seal who guarantees your inheritance in Christ at least three times in the New Testament. So let me give you two of the three, just for the sake of time this morning. Uh, just write these down. You don't have to flip to your Bible right now. Stay in, stay in Revelation 7, if you will. But just write these down, just by, so you can study these later. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. Consider how the Spirit of God is a seal on believers here in this text. Paul writing, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That text almost matches perfectly as far as I'm concerned. All right. Here's another one. Ephesians 1.13. Write this down. Study it later. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. Once again, what we see here is that you, believer, and I, as a believer, we have the seal of the Holy Spirit who's not only marked upon us, but he dwells inside us, right? I mean, this is beautiful. And the seal cannot be revoked from you. It's an indelible seal. It can't be removed. It can't be scratched off. It can't be worn off. You have the Holy Spirit living in you as a seal of the guarantee of your inheritance. Praise be to Christ. Amen? One more thing about the seal, and then we're going to turn over to the census, which is equally difficult to interpret. Don't forget this little plot twist here. That as we move through the book of Revelation, we're going to see the beast and the works of the enemy. We're going to see the works of the satanic malevolent forces uh, rising in focus as we go through the book of Revelation. Right? We haven't talked a lot about Satan so far, but trust me, it's coming. And one of the things that we're going to see as we go through is that Satan himself, he has his own mark, doesn't he? We're going to see the mark of the beast. We're going to see it in chapter 13. We're going to see it mentioned again in 14. We're going to see it in 16. We're going to see it in 19. But I want you to know this. Whenever we come up to the mark of the beast, it is a counterfeit. It is a ripoff. It is a mimicry. It is a mockery, and it certainly does not have any sealing power like the Holy Spirit has in our lives. It is a demonic deception. And one of the things that I think becomes obvious as we work through the book of Revelation is that you are going to take on you one or the other seal. You will either be marked as belonging to Christ, or you will be marked as belonging to the evil one. And there is no in-between. Does that make sense? See, a lot of times I think what we imagine when we think of the mark of the beast and things like that is that there's a few of us, let's say, just say 20%, just kind of throwing out numbers here, 20% are marked by the seal of God, and then maybe there's another 20% that are marked by the seal of the beast or the mark of the beast over here, but most people, like 60%, are just kind of neutral, floating around out there, and they're not excessively righteous, but they're not excessively wicked either. There's maybe like 60%, the majority, are just kind of neutral out there. That is not true. You will either be marked by Christ or you will be marked by the beast. Please do not be fooled to think there is any ground of neutrality whatsoever. There is not. It does not exist. Okay? 
It's like a chessboard, and all the pieces are either this side or that side. You may be a pawn, that's fine, but you're still on one of the two sides. And that becomes clear as we work through the book of Revelation. Don't forget that. All right? So that's the best I can do with the seal. Let's move on to another difficulty here, which is the census. So uh, here we go in verse 4. I heard the number of the sealed. So these two passages connect naturally here. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, and so on it goes throughout the list of of these tribes here. Um, So one of the things that becomes apparent as we've studied this book is that numbers are important to John. Yes, we've seen quite a few numbers. And numerology for John is, is almost always, but there are some exceptions, but very often symbolic numbers. And so we have to ask ourselves, what's happening here with this 144,000? Well, let's just do a little bit of math here. We've got, uh, we've got two sets of 12. We've got 12 by 12 is 144. And then we've also got multiplied by 1,000. So really, there's three numbers in play here, two 12s and 1,000. That makes 144,000. Now, 12s have come up before. And the last time we dealt with 12s, had to do with the angels, the elders in heaven. I think it was Re- Revelation chapter 4, right? And, and we interpreted that as the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament, 12 and 12 together, this time added to make 24. And we interpreted that, that was the day that we didn't have any power. I don't know if you remember that day, but that's the day we talked about this. We talked about that as, as being representative then of the whole church, of all of God's people, the saints in the Old Testament, the saints in the New Testament, representative of all of God's people here. And so there's probably something very similar happening here with these two twelves. This time they're multiplied, though. So we're, we're taking on this picture of greatness or numerical preponderance. There's a greatness here to this number. And then the fact that we multiply at times a thousand, which for John usually means a great, big, beautiful, square, perfect number, It certainly seems then that we have some kind of of important numerical symbolism happening here about the completion of the number of the people of God. Is everybody tracking with me so far? Does that make kind of sense? Give me some nods if you're out there. If you're not awake, just don't do anything. All right, you're mostly awake. Now, what's weird about this list, and this is why it becomes a little bit troublesome to us, is uh, we have here what would seem to be kind of like an Old Testament-y list of tribes. The problem, though, is that this doesn't match any of the lists in the Old Testament. You're like, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. I looked it up. Trust me. So it's not the sons of Jacob as a list because Manasseh is included here right in the middle of the list. And Manasseh is not one of the sons of Jacob. He's a grandson. But you've heard his name before. Yes, and, and very often in some similar lists like this. And so maybe you're saying, well, isn't this the list of the tribal inheritances as they came into the promised land? Isn't there a bunch of Old Testament texts where they talk about the tribal inheritances? Okay, But that's not it either because Levi's mentioned. And while Levi is a son of Jacob, Levi never got a tribal inheritance because the tribe of Levi... Their inheritance was the Lord himself. They were to steward the temple and the tabernacle preceding that. And so if you look up any list that look like this, you're not going to see any one of them match this exact list. Now, 
John is clearly a magnificent Old Testament scholar, and so we have to ask ourselves, well, why is he kind of moving around some names here? What's going on? All right, well, let's try to delve into that mystery. First oddity that comes up is that Judah is mentioned first. Everybody see that? Now, that's weird because every other time, Judah is is listed fourth in order. And please check me on this and correct me if I'm wrong. Judah is normally listed fourth in these kinds of lists, but here he's moved up to the one spot. Why do you think that is? Yes, because this is the tribe of Christ. He is the Lion of Judah. And so the the tribe of Judah moves up from fourth to the prominent leadership position here. And that's a major clue for us because what we are now talking about is the people of the Messiah. Okay, We're now talking about those people that are gathered under the banner, the banner of Messiah's tribe, the tribe of Judah here. So there's a messianic implication here with placing Judah first. Now, what else is going on that's somewhat of an oddity here in this list? And I'll just save you some time and I'll tell you what's missing here. The tribe of Dan, which would normally be in such lists, is not present at all. So where's Dan? By the way, anybody named Dan here this morning? Raise your hand if you're Dan. Any Dan? Okay, we've got at least one Dan. What's up, Dan? <laughs> Dan, with no offense to you, sir. Uh, Dan is not mentioned in this list, and there's a good reason for it. He has been omitted. You say, well, what, what's the matter with Dan? Not our Dan. But in Judges chapter 18, the tribe of Dan committed a very serious infraction against the regulative principle of worship when in Judges 18, and we don't have time to exegete this chapter, but write this down and study it later, the tribe of Dan brings the whole nation into idolatry when he takes for himself his own priest, his own ephod, he takes to himself his own idols, and what Dan does in the book of Judges is he amalgamates elements of true worship, get this, with false worship of idolatry and comes up with his own sort of syncretized, partially true, but a lot of false worship. Does that make sense? And this is really damaging to the whole nation of Israel in Judges chapter 18 because from that point on, and Judges is almost all just like a downhill slide right into idolatry and compromise and spiritual syncretism. We studied this in depth in our men's Bible study uh, on Friday mornings. But this moment where the tribe of Dan compromises the faith and syncretizes the true holy religion and amalgamates it with that which is false is then in this text a warning to God's people that we ought not to make the same mistake likewise. Okay, So major theme of Revelation here, just kind of a meta theme jumping off here, that God's people are called to be faithful no matter what comes. And there's a lot of temptation for spiritual compromise and idolatry in the book of Revelation. And so we think, to the best of our knowledge, that's why the tribe of Dan doesn't get listed at all. It's a reminder. Do not syncretize the true faith with that which is false. Don't do it. Don't be worldly, Christians. Don't compromise. All right? 
Now that only leads us to, a- to answering the question, which is, who are these people? Yes, we're all wondering, like, who's included? I'm going to give you options, and I hope you, this doesn't bother you, but here's some options, and I'm going to order them worst, better, best. Okay? Worst interpretation. Knock, knock, open the door, Jehovah's Witnesses, we're the 144,000. The Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you they're the 144,000. That's a terrible interpretation of this text. They are a non-Christian cult. Reject that and set it aside. This is not what this text means. Okay, amen? Okay, that's the worst interpretation. Uh, they actually believed that until they had more than 144,000. Then they had to, had to recalibrate their own predictions. They had to keep changing their doctrine as circumstances changed. And so we'll set that aside. Here's a better interpretation. Better Some commentators look at this as the number of the elect or the saved of the Jewish people. So ethnic Jews who are nevertheless elect in Christ. In favor of this interpretation, Paul tells us in, in Romans chapter 11 that there is a great time of revival to come for the Jewish people. Now, that text itself is controversial, but in our own Westminster Standards and Westminster Larger Catechism number 191, we are supposed to pray for such an ingathering of the Jewish people. And so one of the possibilities that some conservative Bible-believing Reformed commentators kind of latch onto here is that John is reminding us that there is still yet hope for the Jewish people who will turn to Christ, perhaps even in great numbers, by way of revival, and that we are to hold out that hope and even pray that in. Okay, So some Reformed commentators take that interpretation that we're talking here about the Jewish elect. And also in defense of that position, they would say that's why the very next text after that reminds us that there will be a great number from every tribe and nation in addition to that. Okay, So that's one possibility, a good possibility for this text. However, I think, and again, I could be wrong, and I apologize if I am, I think that the best interpretation of this text is actually that the 144,000 that are sealed here is symbolic of all true Christians, whether they are Jewish in origin or Gentile in origin, together in Christ. Okay, And in defense of that, I would offer you the following information. That when Jesus died on the cross to save his people, the dividing line, the dividing wall is abolished. And from that point on, Christ is gathering to himself a church that is irrespective of race and background. In other words, Christ is putting together for himself, he is building for himself a kingdom of all tribes and all nations. And as Paul even gives that analogy in the book of Romans, it is something like the uh, the Gentile people being grafted on to that tree of the Jewish faith and the true God who is. And so it's possible here that I think very likely that this text actually shows the unity that we have in Christ, both Jew, Jew and Gentile together, coming under the banner of the Lion of Judah himself. I think that's a pretty good interpretation of this text. And I would commend it to you for your consideration, though, again, I'm not 100% sure. Okay? 
Well, let's wrap up here with a couple of applications. So if you're looking for some applications, let me give you three very quickly here. First, whatever else this text means, it very clearly indicates that you are known to God and loved by your Redeemer. Okay, Clearly, that's what's happening here. Put all of the numerology aside. Put, put aside just for a moment the fact that there's good interpretive possibilities here. If this text means anything to you, Christian, please understand this. You are known and you are loved by your Redeemer. And the worlds may set you aside. The world may push you off to the margins. The world may say to you that you are insignificant. The world may say to you that, that you are negligible. And yet you are numbered, you are known, you are marked, you are sealed, you are never forgotten, but you are greatly beloved of your Savior, Jesus Christ. If the text means anything, it means that. Okay. No invincibility mode, but certainly you have the divine seal of the favor of God on your forehead. And uh, whatever else happens to you in this world, uh, know this, nothing can take away your salvation from you in Christ. It is an indelible mark. It is a seal that cannot be removed. Not by circumstances, not by trials, not by the wiles of the devil or the unbelieving world. Nobody can snatch you out of his hands. You are sealed, known, and numbered. Okay? Second of all, you do have his protection. Though there is certainly some suffering to come. John's source text here is Ezekiel 9. That's where he draws this imagery of the sealing of God. You are protected. What are you protected from? The judgments and the wrath of God. You are protected from the judgments and the wrath of God because Christ has died for you. Okay? Your sin has been atoned for in Christ. And though the wrath of God be poured out on this world, the wrath of God is not coming for you you're already under the shield of the cross. Okay. Final thing here, and this is a little bit of an interesting tidbit as well, I think. There's actually a little bit of a summons to war here in this text. You say, where do you see that? No, it's a summons to war. Do you know where the censuses come from in the Old Testament? They come from the book of Numbers. That's, that's another source text here. Flip with me, if you will, back to Numbers chapter 1. It's the, it's the book of the Bible that uh, some people like to skim through because there's all those lists of people, right? But go back to Numbers 1. Let's read a text that we don't read very often. So here we go. Here's a list that's fairly similar. Judah's fourth, though, instead of first, and the order's a little bit different, but that notwithstanding. Notice how in Numbers chapter 1, when each one of the tribes is numbered, there is a more precise number here that seems to be literal rather than symbolic. But in each case, 12 times over, the number is of those who were able to go to war. Do you see that? Numbers chapter 1, verse 20. Numbers chapter 1, verse 22, I see it again in verse 24, I see it again in verse 26, I see it again in verse 28 and verse 30, and so on and so on. Each time that the people of God are numbered, 
the number of those people that is given is those who are ready and capable for war. I do not doubt but that there is a war motif implied as well. Because this is a spiritual war. And it will become very obvious in short time which army you are fighting for. Hi everybody, my name is Rob and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.